This week's episode is brought to you by the Talk Buster podcast. Every episode, Chris Chipman and a guest reminisce of their time working for Blockbuster. Now, even if you've never worked for a Blockbuster, I guarantee you'll find the stories both hilarious and relatable. One of my personal favorite stories was when he had a guest retelling his time of working at a porn shop the day before Christmas when they were just packed to the gills. So, listen to the Talk Buster podcast on all your favorite platforms today. And welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How's it going today, man? It is alright. I have some work frustrations, don't need to go into them right now. How are you doing? Uh, been a pretty mellow day, all in all. I mean, it kind of got away from me, but I'm not complaining. Alright, well, why don't we jump right into our patron sound off? All right, well, we're going to start this episode the same way we start all our episodes, by thanking the people that make this possible. Those are our lovely, lovely patrons. They are Pam Galley, Marky, Orion McCann, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Reed D, Stephen, and Arthur Crane. Now, if you'd like to join that illustrious legion, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields. Only 25 cents in episodes. Make sure we can continue doing this week to week. Now, as the title might have suggested, this week we have a very special guest. We are joined by one of the writers of the Emmy-nominated YouTube series, Lon Harris. Hey, that's me. The Emmy-nominated YouTube series, uh, Honest Trailers. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, Ulrich, I think you need another person to pass through your script. (laughs) (laughs) I am an Emmy-nominated series unto myself. Fair enough. I'd buy that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thank Uh, you for joining us today. Oh, yeah, no, my pleasure. Uh, Thanks for having me. So we're going to do a tried and tested episode format here, a Gone But Not Forgotten. And if this is the first time you're tuning in, Axel, why don't you explain to the the folks at home what a Gone But Not Forgotten is? So Gone But Not Forgotten is an idea we came up with a while back when we had our very first guest on. I actually don't remember what episode that was, but the concept is very simple. It is an excuse to talk about something you feel isn't talked about enough. Generally speaking, that means something that is, you know, older or has fallen out of favor, but it doesn't have to be. There's no requirement. It's just, hey, is there any topic that you feel like you don't hear enough in this kind of space? Well, here's a chance to talk about it. We love doing these for guests because it gives us a chance to just let a guest talk about whatever they feel is important to talk about. Yeah, and it's proven, you know, tried and true tactic, and people really do like these episodes. Plus, some of these things we really can't, you know, squeeze into suggestions of the week because they require more time, or sometimes it just feels like, no, 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 this this needs a full thing, a la Son of Zorn. Fair enough. So we're going to get right into it, and now uh, normally we give the guests the option to go first, or if you'd like us to go first, it's up to you, buddy. Oh, I'll, I'll go first. I'll jump in here. Uh, so the, the first one I picked is, uh, it's a movie, it's a, it's a 90s Bill Murray movie, it's called Quick Change, and the weird thing about this movie to me is, it, it's co-directed by Bill Murray, I think it's one of his funniest movies ever made, and I, you never hear people talk about it, it's never, you know, whenever people list off, like, their favorite Bill Murray movies or performances, Quick Change is never mentioned, despite coming out in 1990, despite 
Bill Murray co-directing the movie, and despite it being really funny, having great Gina Davis performances, Randy Quaid is really funny in it, uh, and it's just a movie that flies, I think, totally under the radar. So this is this felt like the perfect opportunity to bring it up and talk about it a little. I mean, I'll admit I, I have not heard of this movie, and a quick search gives me a bunch of pictures of Bill Murray in a distressing clown outfit with a right. gun. This uh, now the movie opens with the, just to give you the very basic setup. None of this is a spoiler. This is just the very open. Uh, Bill Murray, Gina Davis, and Randy Quaid are robbing a bank in the beginning. He's dressed as a clown as sort of a diversion and as part of the bank robbery. So it opens with this kind of heist sequence, and then the rest of the movie is they they have a plan to get out of New York, but everything goes wrong. And it's one of those movies about like New York being this totally chaotic, crazy city where a million things are happening all at once and it's totally unmanageable. And so they just can't get out of the city. Like they've just robbed this bank. Jason Robards is this cop who's sort of hunting them down, very determined to find them. And it's just kind of this chase through New York with him sort of looking for them and them trying desperately everything they can think of, buses, planes, just anything to get out of Manhattan, out of New York, uh, and out of the city. And uh, it's really funny. It's great. It, it's twisty and turny. Uh, and it's got some really funny uh, supporting performances, too. I mean, uh, Tony Shalhoub is in it. Uh, but, yeah, it's – it's. I don't know. I really don't know what happened. I think it's a little dark, and it kind of previewed – like, this was an era in Bill Murray's career when he was still making really wacky comedies – and I think that, you know, like um, Larger Than Life, that one with him and the elephant. And I think that uh, this didn't fit into that mold. And so people kind of didn't know what to do with it at the time. But now that we've seen Broken Flowers and Rushmore and, you know, he's kind of hooked up with Wes Anderson, we're more used to seeing Bill Murray do darker, weirder kinds of stuff. And so it's high time for this movie to have a revival. I do know that I have heard through the grapevine and in various accounts that Bill Murray has a tendency to get more and more overtly... To, to be diplomatic grouchy as a sure. uh, as a production is going along, which I know like Wes Anderson makes use of and they made use of in Groundhog's Day by literally shooting in reverse. So yeah. I can't imagine what having him as a like a co-director. Yeah, would be I, mean, like. I, I think it was sort of like a troubled production. He kind of took that on to get it made is my understanding. Although I don't, I don't know all the, the grisly details, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, it is hard to imagine him running a set. He sort of seems like in my mind, at least not knowing him personally, I, I picture him as like a Peter Venkman type where he just wouldn't want to take on that responsibility. But <laughs> I don't know the, the, the movie works. I mean, the movie came together. It was, it was not, it also was not financially successful when it came out. It kind of flew under the radar, even in its own time. Have yeah, you, this is weird. I've, I'm rolling through my Bill Murray Rolodex and no memory of even hearing about this. That, that's that's interesting. On a, more, mean, on a more conceptual note, and again, I haven't heard about this. I'm just reading little little tidbits about it. It looks like that this is based on a book of the same name and is also a remake of a film from 1985 called Hold Up. Yeah, there. I think it's like more like there was another version of the book made. And then this one's really different. I haven't seen the 85. Yeah. Okay. Well, then we can just put that one to a side for now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's great. I don't know. About the book. Have you checked the book before? No, no, never. Uh, I think I think the book is like probably that the core setup of the robbery and then the race to get out of town. And I bet they tweaked a lot of it to make it fit like quick change. I mean, I was about to say that it sounds to me like from your description, I'd have to see the movie to say, but that sounds like uh, a lot of, how do I put this? It reminds me of a vacation style thing where it's a set of vignettes, usually to taking shots at 
you know, as you put it, like how crazy of a city New York is. And sure. that's just what it sounds like to me. And, and that kind of thing sounds hard to convey in a book. So I, I would probably also imagine that it's probably pretty different. Yeah, there there was this was a whole this was a more popular genre in like the 60s and 70s. The like people who aren't from New York getting stuck in lost in I mean I guess home alone too. But uh the idea that you're going to get sucked into New York and it was going it's this endless impossible to navigate just chaos was like this very appealing idea. There, there's a movie called The Out of Towners that they remade with Steve Martin, Jack Lemons in the original. And it's the same idea. It's like a guy and his wife come into New York from Ohio because he's got a job interview. And New York is just so crazy that like, they, they end up homeless and, you know, running around like lunatics. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I guess you don't see that as much anymore now with like Uber and, you know, everybody has a map on their phone. Like it doesn't seem like as daunting to get lost in new york it does seem like that's that's a bit i was actually thinking about that pretty recently that we kind of are in this era where getting lost isn't really as much of a thing anymore if you're going to get lost now it's going to be in a place where technology doesn't work which is yes. not new york so right yeah you, you always have that moment it's 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 usually lame it's one of those challenging screenwriter things where you've got to write around like well how do we explain why they don't just use their phone like and that's just constantly an issue with screenwriting today in 1990 it was very easy to just be like oh they took the wrong exit off the freeway well now they're lost like this is a whole like now it's terrible you'll never find your way back whereas today it's like oh yeah just make a u-turn and you're right back where you need to be i i got a question for you now there is by no means any requirement that a film or book's title necessarily be really tied into what it's happening. But when I think of quick change, oddly enough, I think of the uh, espionage tactic of quickly changing your outfit to become uh, right. disguised. So, yes. like, what is the quick change in this movie reference to specifically? I'm going to I'm going to be delicate in how I say it because the potentially getting into spoiler territory but part of the idea of the way they pull off the bank robbery is costumes so like he's dressed up like a clown so like they're throwing people off by exiting the bank looking differently than they went in and so that so it's a play on that like it's both that and when you're on the bus and you need to get changed quickly or when you need to like alter your plan in the heat of the moment so it's it's kind of a play on words it works for me. It looks like uh, the last interesting bit I have, I have here is it looks like this is – we mentioned uh, thinking about Bill Murray directing. It looks like this is the only directorial credit yeah. of Bill Murray's right. career. That's why it's still so surprising to me. You would think just as like trivia, this would be a, a well-known movie just because of that. Like, well, Bill Murray only ever directed himself in one thing, and it's this weird thing. But no, I feel like people don't remember it at all. It's a very, very strange – uh, thing, but I it's it's very quick and funny and it's very accessible, so I recommend it highly. Well, at the very least, you give me a new bit of trivia to bring up when I'm trying yeah. to break the ice in conversation. So, <laughs> and I will definitely is this you said this is more of a this is like a comedy, right? Oh yeah, no, it's funny. Yeah, like yeah, you, you said it was kind of a dark comedy. It's a it's 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 got some well, because I mean they're it's like a crime comedy. Like they're they're sort of bad guys. They're bank robbers trying to get away with it. And there's like as desperation sets in, and they get increasingly like desperate and willing to do whatever it takes. Uh, yeah, I mean it goes to some sort of dark places, but not bleak or grim. It's very funny, and and they're like you know he gets to be likable Bill Murray. Awesome. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, uh, I don't know if you had any other thoughts on that, Ulrich, but I figured... No, not really. I mean, I just kind of instantly flashed back to the John Mulaney joke of, how do you get lost in New York? All yeah, the streets okay. are numbered. 
Now, in fairness, he's talking about Manhattan, and they're getting lost in, like, the Bronx, which is legitimately okay. a little bit that, more... That's, that's a different less, thing. <laughs> less of a grid system, mother effer. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, it, it is. There is an element of that, too, that it's like... And also... In the out-of-towners, they're playing a couple from, like, Ohio, so it's like, well, they've never been there, so blown away by the size of New York. But in this movie, they're playing New Yorkers. So it's not totally, like, they would they would be better at getting out of New York than they are. All right. Well, then uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in here, and my first Gotham Out Forgotten thing is something that I think is going to actually become kind of conversation, you know, within a couple months. But I want to put out... Right now, it's um, a book that I read when I was young. I think I was like nine or ten when I first found this book. It's called White Fang. Either you two heard of it? The Jack oh, yeah, London. That was, uh, that was required reading growing up. I don't remember anything about it, but I know I read it. See, I bring this up all the time to people, and very few people seem to know what I'm talking about. So it surprises me that you both know it. Uh, uh, I have not. I mean, I I may have read the Jack London novel. I definitely there was a movie in the '90s, and that's really what I remember. I believe it was 1991. Uh, there's like I think Disney did it. There's like a Disney adventure movie with Ethan Hawke, uh, and so that's what I saw. That's always the White Fang I, association hmm. I have. Yeah, I never saw. I that remember movie. both. Yeah, I, I never saw that movie. I do know that the reason I say it'll probably be mentioned is because Netflix is making an animated movie about it. That there's a trailer out came out in July or something like that. So and it looks. I mean, it looks pretty well done for a, uh, you know, non-Disney Pixar animated thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't even uh, know about that. But so the, the the plot of the book, right, for for those who, you know, didn't see the movie. I, actually, I have no idea if the movie is very accurate to it because I always remember reading the book thinking this would be really difficult to make a new movie because the book is entirely from this wolf's perspective. And the so the the story loosely is about this wolf's life and the three human owners he has over the course of his life and one of the things the book does that's really interesting is it doesn't shy away from treating the wolf like a creature like it doesn't think a lot of times in humanistic ways it's hard to describe this but point is that so it starts off as basically a wild animal that is you know if not if not half wolf, it's full wolf, but it's one or the other. And its first owner is this, uh, he is what we call the the respectful owner, which is an owner that like trains him and commands him, uses him as a work dog and a, you know, a sled dog, but also punishes him, you know, like, so, so it's like, this is all about, this is the boss, right? And so he's worth this owner as he's growing up. Then the second owner, I, I forgot the circumstances of the transition. I don't remember them being particularly happy. But the second owner is the cruel owner, is an owner who gets his hands on this wolf and puts him in dog fighting pits and uh, is cruel to him, you know, uh, hurts this animal and laughs at him to incense him. The book goes into details about the, the dog fights, which was, I remember, Pretty brutal, considering I read this when I was like, you know, nine or ten. So, and then the after, of course, being traumatized by this situation, the uh, the third owner is the. There's no other way to put this. The love owner, which is the the human who manages to get past the traumatic experience and defensive like nature of the of the cre the white fang at this point, and make an actual emotional connection. And then the, you know, like the book ends when the wolf, like, dies, essentially, at the end of its life, which 
I'm not going to spoil how that happens, but yeah, this it begins with its birth, ends with its death, and the book is everything in between. That sounds all very familiar. Like I haven't read this since I was nine years old, and I do remember the Disney movie because I remember the mid-afternoon, you know, from the Disney vault, White Fang. It's like, what the? Okay. I don't remember if it was any good. I don't remember a lot about this, but just you describing it is kind of, you know, dusted off the cobwebs a bit. Yeah, I liked the movie as a kid. I, it's been a really long time since I've seen it. I think that uh, you were talking a little bit about what they changed. I'm pretty sure from what you were describing about the book, I mean, obviously it's not from the wolf's perspective. It's from Ethan Hawke's perspective, who's the last owner. Uh, so it's really more like Ethan Hawke's adventure going to Alaska or the Yukon, wherever it's at, uh, the Klondike, one of those cold sounding places. Uh, yeah. And you, so you follow him up there, and then he finds the wolf, and then it's the story of him training him and bringing him out of... So I don't think you spend a lot of time on, like, what what traumatized White Fang so much as the relationship and the bond between the dog and the human. I'm pretty interesting sure is they, they literally took the last fourth of the book yeah, and turned it into a movie. It, that's what it sounds like. Because, I, I mean, certainly with Disney, they wouldn't have gotten deep into dog fighting or anything like that regardless uh, so yeah, I think it's more like the inspiring story of the bond between a boy and his dog. Yeah, that and that, that was always why I thought an adaptation was going to be weird because at the time, you know, like it, you couldn't really. Okay, examples of movies that had photo, you know, like real creatures speaking that worked. <laughs> not very common. Like the only thing I could think yeah. of from my childhood was Milo and Otis, and that is problematic now as an adult. Homeward Bound. So, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Well, they Admittedly, used to do the thing where the the animal you wouldn't see the animal speak; we would just hear their thoughts or whatever. Yeah, I suppose so. But I think it's for me the fact that White Fang also uh, different from Homeward Bound. Which don't get me wrong, I loved Homeward Bound. But what thing was interesting about Homeward Bound was I always felt like those creatures were just people that happened to be animals. Like that's the way they they spoke, you know, because they were actors doing it. But what made White Fang interesting as a book, for me anyway, is how this felt like how an actual creature's mind might operate. And I just couldn't see that being adapted very well. Yeah, no, and, and I don't think they do any of that in the movie. It's just a it's just a wolf. Like, it's just, it doesn't think or have human emotions at all. Yeah, and this upcoming Netflix one, based on the trailer, looks like it's going to do the whole book because I see what's very obviously, you know, Puppydom and the first owner... I don't know what it's rated, so I don't know how much they're going to go into the second owner. But I have high hopes because I, you know, I, I like the book a lot as a kid. Uh, wolves are a very well loved creature among my peer group, <laughs> so I'm sure there'll be a lot of takers just for that. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, that book is my my little my first thing. So Ulrich, why don't you take us with yours? All right. Well, I'm going to take us to a dark place, an interesting place. I'm going to talk about moral oral. I don't know if anyone but me remembers that show, but who damn, I recently rewatched that. And am, am I alone in ever watching that? I, I, I've seen it. it. Yeah, go ahead. I purposely avoided it, but that's only because uh, it, you know, it was this Adult Swim thing, right? That uh, I was not a big fan of Adult Swim humor outside of, you know, very few, th like a couple episodes of uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force. But generally speaking, things like C-Lab, and Perfect Hair Forever and whatnot didn't really work for me. And so more oral seemed to be doing the same thing, but with a heavily satirical to religious vibe. And I just, I wasn't interested, so I never really gave it a shot. 
that's understandable. That's not the show so much, but it, it and I'm kind of, I'm agree with you. I, there's a lot of adult swim humor that is just like, this is just dumb or weird for weird sake, or it's, uh, no, Moral World really kind of relies that you're familiar at least with, uh, Davy and Goliath. And if you're not, well, good for you. You, you had a normal <laughs> childhood. <laughs> Yeah, I, that's interesting. I I thought the same thing that like in my head when you said Moral Oral, I think oh right that Davy and Goliath parody from Adult Swim. But I actually just looked it up, and I guess it's not intended as a Davy and Goliath parody. Interesting. Yeah, Dino Stamatopoulos, who's the guy. I don't know. Do you guys know Mr. Show? Do you remember that that HBO show? Yeah, vaguely, very vaguely. So. Dino Stamatopoulos, who created Moral Oral, he was a he was a writer and he was on Mr. Show. There's an episode of Mr. Show that's really famous where there's a guy in the bathroom who tells David Cross, he like snaps his fingers and points at him and goes, hey, man, you got the goods. And that's Dino Stamatopoulos. I never knew this. I just found this out right now. Uh, created Moral Oral. Anyway, he uh, he has a quote that says. Uh, it grew out of a concept for a send-up of a Leave It to Beaver style sitcom that would star Iggy Pop. That's what <laughs> I Does can see a lot of potted bones. plants. <laughs> it's very strange. But yeah. Um, For the, the record, if you haven't, it's just a quick side note, if you haven't listened to uh, Henry Rollins talk about working with Iggy Pop, one of the best uses of like 20 minutes on YouTube. Anyway, go on. Yeah, no, this show very much starts out in what you think it is. It's, you know, it takes place in a town called Moralton where it's very much poking fun at the Bible Belt, ultra-religious, kind of a parody. And then the longer you watch it, the darker it becomes. And uh, we had Movie Bob on. We talked about this off-air. And we were both under the impression that it was only two seasons. Turns out it was actually three seasons. But when they reran the final season, they cut season one and two together and they re-aired it. And that original airing is the first half of that show. It's real kind of light, kind of poking fun. A lot of, oh, these silly Christians. And then the second half is, what do you do if your, you know, father is an abusive alcoholic, but the Bible tells you love thy father, and he might be having a homosexual relationship and, with your gym coach, who is a Satanist. And it just goes to really weird, really dark places. And come to find out, this was the showrunner kind of tapping into some of his own childhood traumas and going, I'm going to get this out through comedy. And if you rewatch, I think it's called The Moral Cut, which is where they recut one in season one and two. It really kind of draws you in with typical adult swim humor and then just gets darker and darker and darker and darker. And you're looking around going, oh, this suddenly became the tunnel scene from Willy Wonka. I'm not comfortable anymore. I, I have no idea why, but something about your description just made me like flashback to my experience with sorry to bother you maybe because that's how i felt oh, when i was watching oh, the movie oh. yeah it's very parallel and you know i love sorry to bother you we'll want to tangent about that real quick in that it kind of draws you in with this light goofy oh this is kind of fun and then all of a sudden it's laying heavy stuff down at you i mean there's a subplot about a woman who was uh, raped there are stories about you know adoption and Oh, man. And again, this is the show that models itself, maybe unintentionally, after Davy and Goliath. And it has one of the most heartfelt, perfect endings for a show that goes to these incredibly dark, incredibly unpleasant places. 
And I made the mistake of trying to binge watch this and I had to kind of back away going, oh, no, this is just this is really weird and depressing and sad now. I miss the episodes where they were trying to hide the caveman because he proved evolution and they made him a right wing uh, Christian radio host. Yeah, I feel. It's, it's, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, no, I was you go ahead. Say, it sounds almost like a, like a little bit of maybe foreshadowing something like Bojack Horseman. Like now. That's, we're, that's what I was thinking. We're, Sorry, pretty, we're pretty accustomed to, you know, cartoons getting very dark, very real, confronting you with these kind of real truths. Uh, not, not as common in that Adult Swim era. It was usually more like absurdity for absurdity's sake in that era. You know, like C-Lab yeah. or something. Well, that's ultimately why it ended at the three seasons is they got notice like, we're not going to renew this for a third season because apparently there was five full seasons. He wanted to branch out and, you know, kind of touch on other characters and what they're going through because he sets up these really kind of interesting plots like uh, this woman dealing with infertility and her desire to have children. This other woman, you know, the guilt she feels about being raped. There's a lot of heavy stuff they set up they never really get around to. So when he heard he's getting canceled, like, okay, I'm just going to skip to my ending that I had planned. And it really is one of those, like, if this came out today, this would be a cult hit. Like, everyone, like, you got to watch Moral Oral. It's really, really cool. And you would have legions of people that, you know, suffered through any kind of serious religious upbringing going, oh, wow, this this speaks to me on a lot of levels. Because a lot of time, Moral's going, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. That seems wrong. The answer is, well, that's what God said, so shut up and sit down. And... It gets heavy, but it is a really great show. I'm just do not binge it. It will it will ruin your day. You know, it, it's funny. Recently, I've been in a, just a somewhat similar. I've been watching Shameless with my my lady, and we were watch we watched like three episodes in a row uh, yesterday, and we still had time before I had to go to bed. And I was like, I need to watch some Harmon Quest to decompress after that. <laughs> so. It just sounds like that yeah. kind of situation you're talking about. That was about. ultimately experience watching this. was like I'd watch a couple episodes and I'd really get into like, this is really good. I can't believe some of the stuff he's doing. And then you get to a really heavy episode. It's like, oh, I, I need to decompress. I don't want to think about these things before I have to go to bed. And I just, I really feel like this show went underappreciated in this time because it's not the weird, obs- kind of off-the-wall humor that was Adult Swim, but it looked like that. So people aren't necessarily going to, you know, the BoJack Horseman fans are kind of looking like, I like a little bit of dark comedy, dark satire. They're going to look at this and go, that's just Davy and Goliath. Eh, they're just poking fun at, you know, Christianity. That's that's easy. What else you got? So I feel like no one ever really watched this. So again, I will tell you, if you are going to watch this, it is all on Hulu. Look up the uh, oral cut and watch it in that order because its original airing is not nearly as impactful. Out of curiosity, so when I grew up, you know, I was pretty poor. We had, like, the one TV and not, like, any channels. So I watched, I ended up watching a lot of TV land. So I've actually seen a lot of uh, Leave it to Beaver. Do you guys watch a lot of Leave it to Beaver or any? Yeah, I watched some of that because my dad loved it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen episodes. I was never a devoted fan. I wasn't a fan either. I just didn't have any other option. (laughs) But anyway, it sounds like if that was his original idea that that might that sort of like connection might certainly enhance the experience yeah i mean i think like a lot of sort of satirical comedy especially for when i was a kid in like the 80s like that kind of first big reaction to like the baby boomer generation was always like 
well, here's how they see themselves is like this cookie cutter, leave it to beaver, 50s happy picket fence sitcom world. And then like, here's the reality. And everybody's like an alcoholic and, you know, every family is dysfunctional and everybody's depressed. And I think there was like a ton of comedy sort of mining that kind of vein. And so this feels like, you know, kind of the Adult Swim sort of update of that perspective, which is, you know, I mean, was in dumb comedy stuff, but also great movies like David Lynch's Blue Velvet is even kind of that same idea. Like suburban life looks like green lawns and everybody's happy and well adjusted, but it's like Frank Booth mixed up right under the surface. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how that's we watch this show. Well, that's what, you know, things like All in the Family and Roseanne laid those foundations, right? And then you get something like More Oral that can probably take it. In fact, because right. More Oral was animated, it was probably able to kind of end on such a quote-unquote under-the-radar network. It was probably able to get away with a whole lot more. <laughs> Right, because, I mean, The Simpsons is kind of even mining that same vein, or at least originally, you know, like, they're they're a typical American family, except dad's an idiot, and the kid, like, you know, is a brat, and, like, always getting in trouble, and that, that kind of stuff. No, the one thing I will say about this, and then we'll move on, is this very much feels like he set out with the clear idea, like, I'm going to stick it to leave it to Beaver, and then halfway through, he started, you know... I'm going to sprinkle a little bit of my own personal demons. And then he realized, I need to get this all off my chest to be a happy human being. And it all went into there. And it's it's very much BoJack Horseman. You kind of were like, do you need a hug? I think I need a hug. Right. All right. All right. Well, Lon, you want to hit us with your next one? Sure. Uh, so I debated putting this one in because this is a it's a film from a very well liked and admired director. So I just feel like, well, that's not underrated. People love Guillermo del Toro. How could one of his movies be underrated? But I still feel like this one is underrated. Uh, Crimson Peak. I'm talking about his sort of gothic horror romance from 2015. Uh, it is a movie that was not successful when it came out. Audiences did not really respond to it. I think you could definitely make the case that it was a failure of how it was marketed or just there's less and less of an audience for this kind of one-off adult dramatic movie that has horror elements. Like, I think we're in an era now where if you tell audiences, like, this is a horror movie, they have certain big expectations, you know, like the Conjuring series and, like, that, those, those slasher movies. Like, they've created the expectation that it's going to be, like, a... There's going to be a lot of like scary imagery and jump scares and kind of edge of your seat thrills. And I think that there's a big part of the mainstream audience that just they want that from every horror movie. And something yeah. like Crimson Peak, which is kind of balancing horror with, as I said, like romance. And it's also a period movie. It's got like these lush sets. And um, well, this is a yeah, gothic I, movie. And gothic's got a completely different sensibility. Like we here at Geeks with Shields have gone on record as being extremely huge Del Toro fans. But yeah, we I agree that Crimson Peak is is uh, appropriate to this discussion because it almost never gets brought up in the Del Toro dis- uh, conversation. Weird, considering you know came out in twenty fifteen is like Tom Hiddleston, uh, you know Del Toro. Like it has all. I uh, felt like that should have been a smash, and then it, yeah, it and, wasn't. And it's not like it is a dull movie or a slow movie and it does have this crazy set i mean the the sort of gothic haunted manner from the movie uh crimson peak the, the crimson peak of the title uh is, is incredible to look at and the sets are amazing and it does have really cool ghost effects and i mean it, it is a it does feel like a contemporary big budget hollywood movie it's just the rhythms of the storytelling, I think, are a little slower and a little bit more about characters and their relationships and sort of uncovering this mystery than, like, ghosts jumping out and going boo and, like, big, cool scares. And there's no scene where, like, 
the person is has a candle and is looking in the foreground for the ghost, and then we see the ghost cross by in the background, and people want a few moments like that in their horror movies. Yeah, it actually yeah. reminds me more of, and I only saw like Crimson Peak once, like right when it came out. And I, I don't, I don't really remember it too well, but just like visually speaking, I remember thinking this feels like those uh, right at the end of the black and white era. Right, there was a predominance of these kind of movies that would find some reason to send contemporary people to ancient castles, sure. or right, and yeah, well, the haunting would be really the innocence would be a really famous one, yeah, yeah, and there was always like, for instance, there's a, there's a scene I remember in all of those kind of movies where you've got the woman in the nightgown with the candle. Sure. walking through a hallway but there's never in those movies like a jump scare like you would expect nowadays it was just supposed to be the tension of there are shadows everywhere and she doesn't really know where she is and she's trying to find her way through and that's the kind of tension i think that crimson peak was trying to tap into more right that is yeah. not common anymore i mean i think to to use kind of childish words to describe it i think there's there's room for both spooky and scary you know like there the crimson peak's not scary it's not the kind of movie where it's like you're terrified and you tell your friend like oh my god you gotta go see it i was so freaked out like it's it's not that kind of movie it's like spooky it's like it's atmospheric and it's dark and it it deals with these kinds of ghostly paranormal supernatural themes but no yeah it's it's not like there's you know, Chucky's not jumping out at you. And I, and I think that it's just a shame that it doesn't seem like there's as much interest in in all of the different colors of what horror movies can be. We've got this sort of narrow mindset a lot of the time, at least about big budget Hollywood horror. Um, certainly independent films, there's all kinds of stuff. Well, it's funny because as far – I mean, I'm not a horror aficionado. Uh, Ulrich knows this. Uh, horror is actually my least favorite genre. But I still feel like horror tends to – its lifeblood is not in the big Hollywood setting. It's in the, you know, because it's, uh, you know, techniques of, of scaring. I mean, okay, I know it's like a cheap shot, or maybe not the right term, but when I think of, like, horror, I think of something like the original Evil Dead. There's just some guys making a movie with their friends, and because, you know, they were pretty skilled with what they were doing, boom, cult classic. And, I you know, you... Sure. I, so yeah, I, no, I mean, especially in a modern context, I think we definitely like Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of birthed this whole idea of like, it's scarier because it's real. Like, it's like gritty and these guys are really in the woods and like if Leatherface looks like he's really doing that stuff, it doesn't look like a, a set. Uh, and I mean, like, that's true. And I love that stuff. But like Crimson Peak, I think, speaks to and we were sort of mentioning stuff like The Haunting and The Innocence, this kind of bygone era. You had the Hammer Studio in England that was making stuff with like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, like adaptations of classic gothic novels or just monster movies or whatever. And then even like Vincent Price kind of stuff in America. Like there is a sort of great tradition of big studio, just creepy movies, you know, where they're just they're taking up, you know, even like the universal classic monsters, like taking up that kind of storytelling. And and, you know, I mean, we, we've lost it a little bit. I think TV uh, and my next pick is also from the world of horror, but in, in TV, so we can talk about it a little more there. Like, I think TV's picking up a lot of the slack. Like, this is the best era for horror on television ever, I think, probably. Like, 
I have heard that the Haunting of Hill House is really good, but I haven't so, checked that. Oh, yet. it's it's really, really, really good. So good, great, yes. Like that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like I think a lot of the interesting filmmakers and people who would be doing stuff with horror are kind of gravitating towards streaming services and television now. So there's just a ton of of th- that stuff that's exciting. But yeah, I do. I think like you know we we've seen like studio horror has basically kind of become a little bit one flavor, and it's like that. You know the nun, like it's that that stuff, and that that's I I like those movies, but it's just one flavor. I do See, think it's uh, more than just horror. You get a lot of interesting kind of creative people moving towards television. I mean, it's what the last when did the Sopranos come out? That basically kicked off this yeah, <laughs> a, a long time ago. Unfortunately, yeah, twenty years ago or something. It's just like ever since then, it's just television is becoming more and more the place for prestige. I remember. Watching a video recently talking about that's why you don't see like crime movies as much anymore because now people can do those kind of stories in television way easier. So yeah, I mean, I think that is part of. I mean, th- there are still great crime movies, but I think audiences that's not the kind of stuff people want to go pay to see in a theater anymore. Like one of the things I actually thought about, uh, I didn't end up putting it on my list for the show, but I thought about it was the drop. Did you guys ever see that with Tom Hardy and uh, I think it's that with Gandolfini, James Gandolfini. Uh, it's great, but it's just like this little weird idiosyncratic crime movie. And it's like, yeah, that's not going to find an audience in theaters in 2019. It doesn't. And I, I think I please let's not get into it. But I think that's kind of what Martin Scorsese is trying to get at. And people are just reading it as like he hates capes, and it's like he he just keeps uh, we don't we don't need to I don't yeah, want to get touch that I don't want to get into the details of it, but I do think that's kind of what he's trying to speak to is that is that for whatever reason for a multitude of reasons the the tastes of what people want to go see in theaters is really narrowed, and there's only a few kinds of movies that people really want to go see on a big screen and superhero movies and comic movies are one of those things and i think that yeah interesting weird crime movies maybe aren't as much unless they're like bad boys you know like that kind of stuff sure but we get plenty of weird television now or even streaming things now like what is it recently i was i was perusing through netflix and something just just got released on there called a daybreak that looks like i don't know it looks like one of those um, post-apocalypse. We're not or too old for that one, I think. No, that, that's like fine. Max, I'm just saying Max that's high school, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just saying it was like a weird thing that, like, that would have been a movie like five years ago when like the Maze Runner and all that stuff was all. But now it's just like now I just make a show for it. And oh, what was a, a better example? Uh, Living with yourself, right? That's yeah, the, that Paul Rudd thing. That yeah. was really good. I haven't I haven't watched that yet. I just saw, I just watched the trailer. I'm like, this is a really cool, really weird you know, concept and the, it's starring a bona fide movie star, but he's, it's just a streaming show instead. You know? Yeah. It would have been multiplicity. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Multi- yeah. Oh, I forgot about that movie. I love that yeah, movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like multiple. I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't know if it holds up, but I liked it when it came uh, out. It doesn't, but I love it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, my next thing I was going to talk about is a, uh, a video game that I remember being really huge when I was a kid. And then the last, title came out like five years ago and was kind of crummy and no one really talks about it which is a twisted metal sure yeah i loved that game and i then, did then too trade me i saw it on your list and i was like he can't mean that 90s video game for the playstation twisted metal but <laughs> yeah, right. yeah yeah so so twisted metal to anyone who don't know is an extremely simple premise it's a game where you're in a car but you're not racing. You're trying to destroy all the other cars with 
rocket launchers, machine guns, uh, bombs, mines, whatever. And the thing that, for me, makes games like this is character, right? Because I can point to something like Burnout, which is basically doing a similar kind of thing where you don't you care more about destroying the other cars than racing. But Burnout doesn't have any character in it. It's just, like, cars and stuff. But Twisted Metal, a big part of the experience was, oh, first of all, the soundtrack, at least from, like, the third one on, is, like, it's all Rob Zombie, and all these characters are, like, really crazy out there kind of pastiches or takes on certain horror movie kind of characters and... And no matter who you play with, the ending is going to be miserable for everyone involved. <laughs> and it's, it's fun. And uh, three was the, the 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 big one for me because like two is was the first one I played. Like I I went back and played one once, but that was a no. <laughs> but uh, three was the 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 one that I I remember that the first one though has live action cutscenes and trying yep, to go back really and, bad, really old live action cutscenes, yeah. but they were awesome when it first came out that that yeah, was that was time. impressive yeah yeah so, I, I feel like this was a game that in like the aftermath of fighting games where they kind of figured that out like part of what everybody loved in fighting games was you picked your character your 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 like there was no idea of your of maining anybody back then and so i think that was what they kind of unlocked and like twisted metal really made use of was like oh it isn't just the cool cars they want to bash into each other it's it's the characters and the branding and you want to be this character versus that character yeah, you you touched on it exactly cuz i'm i'm a big fan of fighting games in general and for me the one of the major appeals of fighting games is not finding a character that is just good because, you know, I mean, unless you're like a professional or something, but even though the professionals, you find a character that you attach to their personality and their aesthetic. That's why you, and then you make yourself good with them because you like the character. So Twisted Metal was doing the same thing just in car form, which was really crazy. And they made quite a few of them, right? There was Twisted Metal 1 through 4 was the the main series, which, uh, like I said, I don't like Twisted Metal 1 that much, but 2, 3, and 4 were all great. There was... Uh, uh, 4's okay. Uh, I really like 4, but 4 was way more difficult than all the other ones, so I think that might have turned people off. So, Twisted Metal Black was the, let's make everything super serious and make the humor, like, a lot more dark. Because there was still humor in it, but Black made it a lot harder to... Welcome to the 2000s. Find. Yeah, exactly. Where fun went to die. But Black came out the same time as Small Brawl, which was a PlayStation 1, like, terrible graphical game. But it was the idea of, let's take all the Twisted Metal characters and make them children. And it was hilarious. <laughs> so, wow, I do not remember that at all. I was clearly already moved on from this franchise by that point. Yeah, well, this thing is, like, Small Brawl gets a lot of bad reception because it came out at the same time as Black. Black was a polished really good looking really good controlling playstation 2 game and small brawl was literally a playstation 1 game released at the same time with like shoddily put together so like as a game it was not very good but as a vessel for this concept it was really funny like the idea um so the most famous character in twisted metal is sweet tooth who is a psychotic killer clown and so in small brawl He's the youngest member of the contest. He's only like eight years old. Oh, and by the way, they're all fighting with uh, RC cars instead. So the weapons are like bottle rockets and stuff, <laughs> which is just hilarious to me. And the and the maps are like a playground or a movie theater or a kitchen. Was, the, was this possibly like the game got some heat for being too adult and so they made a version for kids? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. 
Maybe. I mean, I like, totally buy that. But they still like now kids can play Twisted Metal because we made this like junior version that's not you know dangerous. No I mean, that, that sounds that sounds extremely likely to me. Although it's funny because I feel like most of the time, like ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time when that happens, the game sucks. But I really like Small Brawl because it. It still had a lot of great character. Like I was saying, so Sweet Tooth, right? His whole thing is at the end, he wishes for some ice cream. And Calypso, who's a bully, right, uh, takes him to an ice cream car. And Sweet Tooth steals the car and runs over Calypso with it. And it ends with him running from the cops as he's laughing while driving this, you know, the the original Sweet Tooth vehicle off into the... it, uh, It made me laugh, so... But... Anyway, so yeah, uh, after Black, then we had, there was some game Twisted that came... Twisted Metal. It just was the, re- was the next one was just Twisted Metal. They tried to reboot it. I thought there was one in between that, but okay. Not that I know of. Yeah, so Twisted Metal was a PlayStation 3 version, and first of all, Twisted Metal committed what I consider a major um, fighting game sin, right? And since this we've established this is basically a fighting game, but with cars, is that... It made it so that the story only involved three of the characters. So, like, this was, uh, this game was made, the reboot was made for just to, like, play online against other people, which to me was, you know, just really frustrating because I loved playing through with all the cars and seeing their endings, and I still have some of them memorized from Black, but then the the reboot just didn't do that. It was like, okay, Sweet Tooth gets one, Mr. Grimm gets one, and uh what outlaw i don't even remember what the third one was but it was just dull and no one's touched it since then every time we get like like sony will recognize something like make some reference to sweet tooth in something but that's about all we get <laughs> there are rumors circulating that they're going to either remaster one of them or release a remastered collection as part of the playstation 5 push because it's gonna be backwards compatible and you know that's one of their big franchise the other one that's rumored, which I don't know how many people outside of you and me are going to enjoy this, is the Resistance trilogy getting a remaster. Because that's what they launched with. You know, if I had a little bit more optimism about game companies, I'd probably be excited about that. But <laughs> I don't. So anyway, my, my point is, uh, if you can get your hand, I would say if you can get your hands on Twisted Metal 3, it is definitely outdated by like current day standards. But that to me is like, peak twisted metal so anyway Ulrich alright my next one was one I really debated about putting on here because I love this show but half of the fun is showing it to somebody for the first time and them having no idea what's going on and that's man seeking woman have you guys heard about this one sure I like this show okay so you know what I'm talking about in showing this to someone blind right uh I really don't think I've showed it to anybody but uh Go go ahead. I don't don't know where you're going with this. Okay, so Man Seeking Woman is this great little show that ran on FX, and it kind of opens, you've got, the main cast is Jay Baruchel, Eric Andre, and uh, Britt Lower, who I don't actually know where she's from, but this is my first experience with Eric Andre, which, that was interesting. Um, Yeah, I was about to say. (laughs) And it just kind of opens like his girlfriend breaks up with him, and he's walking down the street, and it starts raining, and there's birds, and it's like, well, that, that, that's, that's weird. What's that about? But you just kind of brush it off, and then it just kind of keeps going, and you kind of more and more surreal stuff kind of keeps happening. Like, 
I thought that okay, so his emotions, he manifests his emotions. And then you get to the blind date where his sister sets him up with, and you know, it's like, well, where's my date? Oh, she's across the street. Her? No, no, the one in the garden, the dumpster. What? And a troll climbs out. Like a literal troll. He's like, you set me up with a troll? Come on. Well, she has a great personality. And that's when you realize this show's shtick is everything is being taken literally. Um Ah. Yeah. And the first time you're watching this, you just think it's this regular kind of, you know, okay, this guy got broken up with dealing with it. But then, you know, you start getting things like the troll and uh, he has to go to a wedding that he was going to go with his ex-girlfriend. It's a destination wedding and the destination is hell, literally hell, because, of course, destination weddings are often referred to as hell. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's like taking taking everything to like a surreal fantasy extreme like if you could imagine like what would be the worst like oh the worst person that you would see your ex start dating and it's like well would it be as bad as like adolf hitler and so like his ex will start dating hitler and it's like that everything kind of taken to like the broadest most cartoonish extremes the hitler episode is really great and you know uh, they really play with it, and it kind of goes out later seasons, but they make a lot of jokes about, you know, for Jay Berenthal being Jewish, and he's like, oh no, there's a Jew in Hitler's party. I'm joking, I'm joking. And you're just like, the comedy writing is so good that you're just kind of like, that should be terrible, but that's fucking hilarious. And it also feels kind of true if you're really still into your ex. You and know, I know, I know for a fact that you, Ulrich, have expressed to me many times how not into surrealism you are. So this strikes me as particularly interesting uh-huh. coming from you. No, I, I really do not like surrealist comedy typically, but this one is so funny and so well done. There are some great jokes. And like some people I've been able to get this into and some people they're just like, what the fuck is this? And the number one episode they drop off in is the tentacle monster episode. Okay, elaborate. There, there, There is a literal tentacle monster because the joke is he gets a new girlfriend and she's so incredibly hot and he immediately becomes worried that he's not good enough for her and that every guy is out to sleep with her and her ex shows up and her ex is an intergalactic tentacle monster. And most people go, this is too weird. And this was the moment like, okay, I'm, I'm in this show. This is really great. And each season does a great job of explaining a different, you know, step. The first one is he's really into this ex, him getting over the ex. The second season is, okay, now that he's over the ex, how does he, you know, go back to being single? What What's going on, you know? And then the third season, which is probably the best, but it loses a lot of the surrealist humor, is being in a relationship and coming to terms with that. And my favorite joke is he gets mad and he yells at his mom and she's all upset and he goes over to visit her and his dad's out front in overalls with a shotgun and he's like, what's going on? Oh, I'm sorry, Josh. Your mom's gone mad. So, you know, we're going to let her buy some Yankee candles, let her watch Oprah one last time. I'll take her up behind the head and shoot her. All right. I mean, I already bookmarked this. I'm going to watch this later. <laughs> this yeah, is such a weird show. It's weird. and But I, I, I would take issue. Like, I know I, I use the word surreal, but I think there is there is a difference between, like, just weird, absurd, crazy for crazy's sake. Uh, and I mean, I'm not saying, like, I don't mean this disparagingly, but if you think about, like, Tim and Eric style humor, where it's just like, this is going to just be really odd and just get more and more strange. Uh, this is not that. Like, this is... 
it, it's it more remains like, grounded. It has right, in-universe it, rules. And it does almost sort of feel in some ways like, well, it's kind of just a sitcom with sketch comedy rules. Like, it's anything for a joke, but then you can always come back to, like, home base where there is, like, a real story with real characters, and they're they're relatable on some real level. It's not like just craziness. So when it when we say surreal, it's like it's kind of just like the gags are surreal, but the the it's always grounded in some kind of observable reality. Well, that's what I think of when I think of uh, Lisa Hanawalt stuff. I mean, BoJack Horseman, obviously, but also Tuca and Birdie more so, arguably. Right. So. And it's yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a crazy world, but it's not like. The jokes are just baffling and bizarre stuff you couldn't explain. It's, uh, you know, it all comes from character and the characters are relatable. Yeah, and it's, again, it's really well written. It's really funny as great, you know, every characters are developing. They are consistent. Uh, his buddy Eric Andre is just the most over-the-top, womanizing bro if you know me, he is me in the, you know, my college years level. There's a great episode where they take him to uh, a bro adoption. You know, when you get single, you can't hang out with your bros, so you take him like you would do a pound, and they've got Madden and Bud Light there waiting for him. It's just, I love the humor so much of this show, and I love exposing people to it for the first time and just watching their brains try and wrap their heads around, like, what is going on with this show? Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of freedom that I think we have on TV today that wasn't there not that long ago, like a decade or two ago, when there were used to be much more set formats and there were rules and it was like, this is this kind of show and this is that kind of show. And now it's nice when you watch a show and you get that sensation of like, oh, I legitimately don't know what they're going to do or like how they're going to play this. And it's got a different kind of vibe and and voice. Uh, I always think that's exciting. Even just that moment when you realize you're watching something that like, oh, this isn't going to be like every other show. This isn't what I'm expecting. No, um, I can't re- recommend this show enough. What's it Don't, on? It's on Hulu. You Hulu, get all okay. on Hulu. Don't let the weirdness kind of put you off. It is a really good show with great heartfelt moments. And again, I think a really great ending that I really loved and how it ended and what it was saying and there's kind of subtext that's not too hard to, you know, figure out what they're saying in this, you know, show. But at the same time, there's a good amount of really weird out there jokes that you're not going to get bogged down in the meaning and subtext of it all. Yeah. Yeah, this was an it was an FX show from that period, like peak FX, where they just had a lot of like really weird, interesting, odd little stuff coming out all at once. Yeah, and I'm glad it got to do its, you know, three-season arc before it didn't get canceled. I guess it's based on a book, which I really want to read the book now. Well, uh, Lon, you want to give us your your last one? Sure. Uh, So I sort of teased it a little already. Uh, Fox did, speaking of TV shows that got cut off in their prime, uh, Fox did a two-season-only TV reboot of The Exorcist. Uh, it was the, the, the first season was in 2016. Uh, the second was 2017. And then it was and then it was sadly gone. Uh, and it was really good. Uh, it, a lot of shows recently have been trying to sort of revive the idea of exorcism and, and sort of expand on it. Uh, there's one on right now that's actually pretty good, too, called Evil on CBS. Uh, and it's, it's really odd to me because, you know, thinking of movies and exorcism, it's such a closed ended it's like a ritual. So it has a beginning and an end. It seems like, well, how could you turn a t- get a whole TV show out of that? Wouldn't it just be the same thing over and over again? Uh, and so I, I was really impressed by how the show managed to get two full, interesting, 
creepy, thoughtful seasons out of a premise that it would seem like you couldn't really take that far. Uh, and a lot of what they did was uh, they one they they came up with a, an interesting way to tie it into the movies that that I don't want to blow. But this is happening in the same world as the the classic Exorcist series, and they tie it in in a really interesting way uh, that's not cheesy. Like it seems like it could have really easily been lame, and it's sort of interesting and unexpected. Uh, and the second really great thing they do is they they made the two priest characters. Uh, really compelling sort of on their own. So you can kind of get in, into the drama just from that perspective instead of like demon of the week. Oh, what's the demon doing this week? Uh, so, you know, you get Alfonso Herrera as uh, the young priest, Father Tom Tomas Ortega. He's sort of idealistic, uh, not an exorcist, just discovering the existence of demons and exorcism. And then Ben Daniels is the older, wizened and very cynical priest who's been fighting demons for his whole career. And so, you know, a lot of the show is sort of based around their dynamic and the way it works is there were two seasons. So each season is its own narrative with the same. The only two characters that carry over are the priests. So in the first season, it's Gina Davis and her family have a haunting and need the help of an exorcist. And then in season two, John Cho is like a foster dad to this whole family of, of kids. And then their house gets haunted. And, and a lot of what they play around with is, the first thing the priest has to figure out is, well, who's possessed? And that that mystery kind of gets you through a bunch of the season, which is kind of, they, they do that in sort of the Conjuring films too, where there's kind of twists and turns in terms of, well, we know there's a demon here, but who's got the demon and what is the demon up to and doing and all that kind of stuff. Well, I was so going to anyway, say that uh, the Conjuring is probably, you, you mentioned like wh why is exorcism becoming kind of like a popular thing right now. You could probably point to the first Conjuring and the idea of like, you know, treating the Warrens the way that those movies do. And, yeah. hey, let's make a series that's based in an old, like, horror steeple and do the same kind of thing where we've got, like, kind of like a superhero duo, except without the uncomfortable connections to real-world frauds. Yes, and I think and I think that is that is definitely part of it. Insidious 2, around the same time, kind of has that same vibe of, you know, the, the old lady. Lin Shay is the old medium. Uh, and, it, yeah, so I think that idea for whatever reason is appealing and and i mean to the show's credit it's really uh the exorcist show kind of took a nod from hannibal which is one of my favorite recent tv shows uh so it's very visually interesting and stark and weird and it, they spent a lot of time just making it feel kind of atmospheric so the plot doesn't have to do quite as much heavy lifting because it's just creepy week to week also i just want to add that uh, john show Especially considering where I first saw him, I am just more and more impressed with him every time I see him. I feel like after yeah. I saw Searching, like my entire full, full, you know, frame of reference for what an actor can become was shifted. So, yeah, and I mean, he's really because the, the second season, you know, season one, it's there's a whole family, it's a big cast. The second season, it's all of these young actors, and then him, he's really right at the center of it. Uh, yeah, no, it's a great performance, and it's one of those things, like, a lot of the actors in this show are great, and it's just because of its association with horror, and because it's sort of, you know, spooky, scary monsters, it doesn't get that kind of respect, and I don't think you'd ever see award talk or, or acclaim on that level for a performance in a show like this, but Cho's really good in this, and it's not an easy uh, performance that he's pulling off in season two.
And yet, and now we can add yet another uh, corpse onto the pile of canceled too early shows by Fox and its. Yeah, yeah. this one was a real bummer too because they kind of like you could kind of figure out where they were going to go in season three and it was going to be really good. So Hannibal two, by the way, leads into what would have been an awesome season that they never got to make. Hannibal is like number two or three on my list of shows I want to watch that I've never got around to because Mads Mikkelsen oh, is one of my favorite actors currently working. Period. And I just haven't had time to sit yeah. and watch Hannibal yet. I, I have said this before. I mean, I love Silence of the Lambs in those movies. I'm a big Thomas Harris fan just generally. But I actually think Mads Mikkelsen is my favorite Hannibal Lecter. More, more so than Anthony Hopkins. Hey, I think I, I can see I, that. I'm not going to be surprised because, like I said, I think Mads is amazing. <laughs> did you see? Yeah, uh, did you ever see The Hunt? I did. I love The Hunt, yes. There you go. To me, that's like, you want proof? There's my Exhibit A. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, he, I mean, he obviously... Hopkins only has a few movies. He Mads has, you know, several seasons of television, but uh, his read on, on the character and sort of his manner and how he would interact with people, I think is, is the most interesting of anybody's. Well, Hopkins kind of, you know, bounces back and forth between menacing and goofy as the movies go along. So he kind of loses right. point there. Well, they do. I mean, one thing I think that they both find is that it's, it's, they're both love stories in some ways. It's like Science of the Lambs is so much about how he's in love with Clarice. Uh, and then uh, Hannibal's about how he's in love with Will Grant. So uh, they, they both kind of play with that. It's just the way that the, the actors bring that out in the characters is really, they're both great. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to knock Tony Hopkins. He's terrific. But, uh, yeah. but uh, uh, back on, yeah, a little back on just track. Interesting takes and, and he had so long to sort of work on it. Uh, where anyway, The Exorcist. Uh, where yeah, can we watch it now? I believe it is on Hulu. Let me make sure real quick. But yes, uh, I I think that's where I watch it because it was a Fox show. So now it's just floating out there. Whoever owns Fox, which would be yeah, it would be on Hulu. All right. Uh, so cool. watch watch it on Hulu. It's terrific. All right. I think uh, I think Ulrich will agree that in the interest of time, we'll forego our our third entries in this and move on yeah. to the next section. Oh no. But, Ah, no worries. It, it happens. Uh, usually oh, we like have okay. three so that we can like make sure we fill time, but we have plenty to talk about. And our next section is all about uh, you, Lon. Actually, it's, you are allowed to plug whatever you want to plug. It's your, uh, wow. You know. Awesome. Uh, well, I'll talk about two things real quick because I, I guess time is an issue. Uh, first is uh, Screen Junkies. So find us Screen Junkies uh, on YouTube. Uh, I write a bunch of stuff for Screen Junkies. I write a, a little show called Cram It where we sort of help you. Here's everything you need to know about a franchise before you watch the newest entry. So our most recent one is Terminator leading into Dark Fate. Uh, I'm working on the Star Wars one right now. Uh, I also, we do movie fights. I write the questions and stuff for that. Uh, we're doing one, uh, we're going to do Disney fights, I think, in a week. Um, and then uh, Honest Trailers. I work on Honest Trailers, so watch those. Uh, and then the other thing I would p promote, as long as I've got my moment here, uh, I write a newsletter about streaming TV uh, for a company called Inside. So if you go to inside.com slash streaming, you can subscribe to that. It is free, a few little ads, but nothing too terrible. And then it's just my, it's news. And then I do weekly reviews of what to watch and streaming. I recommended The Exorcist at the time. So if you'd subscribed, you could have been hip to that for a couple years already. So you doing all the Star Wars movies for Kramit? Uh, uh, yeah, we're, I mean, we're not going to spend, I'll say this. We're not going to spend equal time on every movie. So we'll kind of real quick bring you up to speed on everything you need to know about the ones that aren't the most recent ones. And then as we get more current, we'll, we'll sort of expand. And Solo was a movie that happened. 
<laughs> oh, I don't uh, think we're going to... I mean, I, I feel like we'll probably keep mostly to the episodes. So I don't think we'll do a lot of... We probably won't spend a lot of Rogue One time. Well, in a similar vein, it feels like if you're doing that for uh, for Terminator Dark Fate, my understanding is basically the last three movies don't matter. So. Yes. Uh, I mean, we yeah, we, we have a lot of fun it, 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 with this. Like, every time we do one of these, we sort of talk about, well, should we really just limit it to the movies that matter? And it's like, no, a lot of the fun is making fun of the movies that don't matter and pointing out that they don't matter. And I think that uh, based on the comments and some of the feedback, like people almost like that the best. So we definitely make that a runner in Terminator that we're constantly reminding you like, and then this happened, but please do not worry about it. Like that's ridiculous. Why would they do that? And so I think there's a lot of fun in being able to sort of step outside of it and be like, you don't need to know that at one point Skynet was going to be called Genesis and that they made John Connor a cyborg. Like you don't uh... need to know. But <laughs> yeah, there's literally three solid here, movies. Of as long that... as you're here, we're going to tell you about it. Oh, I don't man. want to remember that though. <laughs> I, I I've been trying to get that in my brain space because no, oh, I get that. Hey, the only enjoyment I could get from those three movies is making fun of them. So I, I approve wholeheartedly. <laughs> okay, that's true. And I think there is there's some fun in like looking back, and you don't have to revisit the whole movie to just be like, oh my god, you're right, that happened. I totally forgot. And honestly, me writing it a lot of the time, I'll go back to these movies and go like, oh my god, I I forgot about that. That's crazy. Like talk oh. to the hand. I forgot about that in Terminator Three. I forgot about <laughs> oh no, no, that, that that's burned in my retinas because I don't know if that's funny or not. It's not. Yeah. Well. Uh, anyway, now you know, after our after our guest plug, uh, we do what we do a thing called suggestions of the week. It's actually very similar to the entire format of Gone but Not Forgotten, except in this case, we're now just suggesting, hey, here's something we've been into recently, so you should give it a chance because it's currently out and active or whatever it is, like. Mine, for instance, is a movie that I just saw in the Dollar Theater, so it's been out for a while, but uh, called uh, Good Boys. You guys heard of it? I yeah, wasn't was sure the, this was going to be any good. The Jacob Tremblay one with the kids, I, right? Yeah, I have no idea if it's good. I know that I laughed a lot, and that's really all I can expect from a comedy. So I know that, for, to put it simply, I, me and my lady were looking for something to spend a, a Sunday doing. Right. And we were just reading like, OK, what movies are out? And the description of this movie is something along the lines of a trio of sixth graders lose one of their father's drones while trying to spy on a pair of teenagers and have to get the drone back or get a new one before the dad comes home from trip, whatever it is. So it's it's a very simple premise, the kind of thing I can imagine, you know, very Goonies like, except it's R rated. So it's like if the South Park kids were doing it and I mean, that's really the basis of it. This is not a very complicated or sophisticated movie, but the act, uh, the kid actors are, you know, they're doing, uh, they're doing a good job and it made me laugh. So there's my suggestion of the week. If you have a chance to, you know, spend a dollar to see it or something. Yeah. I feel like Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, like they don't, not all of their movies are fantastic. Like every once in a while they'll do a, like, this is the end or something. And it's really good. But most of the time it's like, you know, it's like a good, it's a good plain comedy. It's like, I enjoyed that. That was fun and passed the last two hours. Okay, let's move on. That's yeah. kind of my, all those Point Grey, Gold, Rogan, Goldberg experiences. They're all kind of like that. Yeah, and that's that's very much my experience. Like I had a great time with it, and I don't expect a whole lot. So, fun stuff. There you go. 
All right, we'll all go next. Um, <laughs> I've recently been revisiting what a childhood classic of mine, uh, the Beverly Hillbillies. I say childhood classic not because I was a child when this came out, but because my dad was, and he loved it. And, you know, growing up as a hillbilly, this show, you know, of course we had to watch it. And I've been rewatching it. Not only is it still funny, I maintain this is one of the subversive shows ever made. Here's a little story about a man named Jed. Yeah, you, you know the song, you know the story, but basically a hillbilly strikes it rich by, you know, finding oil and moves to Beverly Hills, buys a big mansion. And the main setup for all the jokes is that they misunderstand some swanky thing and, oh, isn't that funny? But the kind of undertone is, man, you rich people are dumb buying all this useless crap you have no need for. And why I love this so much is this is the 50s, height of consumerism. And the whole joke is you don't need this crap. These, you know, poor people got that figured out and you're here shelling out for the new line of whatever. And I love it because it's not mean-spirited. It's just kind of gently poking fun at consumerism, which I find hilarious more today than I think ever. Yeah, but arguably, Beverly Hillbillies was around the same time as the Munsters and the Adams Family, which, other than the spooky thematic overtones, all three, uh, uh, you know, those two and Beverly Hillbillies all shared this kind of idea of being somewhat about a family that doesn't fit in with the things around them and is used as a vessel to essentially poke fun at the ridiculousness of, well, suburbanism in monsters and Adams families in cases and what's the one level up from suburbanism <laughs> that Beverly Hillbillies is doing. It's the same principle though. You know what I mean? Oh, it's yeah, also there's definitely that. It's also the guy, the same guy who wrote, who created Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, he also did green acres and petticoat junction, which are the mirror. It's just, well, what if we send rich people to go live with the hillbillies now? Like, it's really just that simple that you could just do the opposite, and that's also a show. No, I think that it's – rarely have I found that shows, you know, this old, the jokes still really work or it's still really funny. One of the things that I do find funny is they have the commercials and the sponsors written into the episodes. So they go, there's nothing that Jed Clampett loves more than a big old bowl of cornflakes. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, or you know, or the cigarette ads. Oh boy, that's a nice little uh, relic of the time. But again, this could so simply be, boy, them hillbillies sure are stupid. Look at them simple country folk. And it's more like, no, they're reasonably intelligent and good-meaning people. It's these rich blowhards that are the joke. Yeah, uh, this is on Amazon Prime. Go watch it. I think it's a good use of time. And honestly, it doesn't get that many things wrong about hillbillies. I mean, there's some stuff that's overplayed, but a lot of it, yeah. <laughs> all right, like well, uh, all right, Lon, what do you have to suggest for us? Uh, so mine is a, it's a Netflix sketch comedy show. It's called I Think You Should Leave, or I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson, who is the main guy. He was on Detroiters. Uh, he wrote for SNL. Uh, it's his show. It is amazing. And I think that the, the best thing I think is about, I think you should leave. It's a Netflix show and it uses the fact that Netflix episodes don't have to be a half hour 
to such great benefit. Like the episodes of I Think You Should Leave are basically like 12 to 18 minutes, like about as long as they need to be. But they they've been able to look like cut all the fat. So it's a sketch show, but there's no like off sketches. Like every sketch is great and like really hits and is super funny. A lot of the sketches, because there's only six episodes and each episode is only about 15 minutes. So like a huge percentage of the total sketches have gone on to become like internet memes and like popular viral things. And like, because they just have this, they have this huge batting average because they only did, they only sort of went forward with the sketches that work best. Yeah. I'm uh, seeing tons of pictures of uh, Mitch Bryant, which looks like one of those attorneys and late night commercials. Yes. Uh, well, the one that, that became like a huge meme that I would wager, even if you don't know the show you've seen, is there's an old man at a focus group. Uh, and he's like an old bald guy, but he's got stringy gray hair and he like is making fun of and being very hostile to the other people in the focus group. And so it's goes like, you have no good car ideas or whatever. Like he's become like an internet meme. That's from one of the sketches set at a, you know, it's like a focus group sketch early on in the show, but, uh, it's, it's rare to see a, a sketch comedy show as well. That has like a real, there's like a theme. There's like a central idea. It's not just, and now here's another sketch. And now here's another sketch. Like each of them is about like people who don't understand the social contract and it's time to wrap up this conversation or it's time to end this argument and they just don't get it. And it just keeps getting worse and they keep digging the title. More, more, making it right, making it more and more and more awkward and over, unbearable. Um, and, and all the sketches kind of flow from that central observation in a really interesting way. Plus it's, it's got a lot of like guest actors, you know, who will pop up in like one sketch or another, uh, a lot of SNL vets are in there. It's just really, really funny. And I want more people to get my references to it. So I want more people to watch it, please. Fair enough. Uh, and then it's coming back for a, for a second season. Oh, the other thing I was going to mention, it's produced like Andy Samberg pops up in it. And it's produced by the Lonely Island guys. And if that, <laughs> if that is your sense of humor, if you're the kind of person that likes Hot Rod and Rockstar and uh, pop star and some of those Lonely Island sketches, like it's it speaks to a similar kind of sensibility. I wasn't really into that kind of humor until Brooklyn Nine Nine kind of like made me more receptive to it. But I will definitely give it. I love sketch comedy in general, so yeah, I'm definitely yeah. I mean, the, the, the fifteen minute episodes, like the the barrier to entry is really low, so it's definitely worth checking out an episode two. And you get from the first episode, you will get the vibe of what the show is kind of all about. All right, rock on. Yeah. All right, Ulrich, you want to take us in the, the end here? Yeah, first we'd like to thank Lon for coming on and, you know, talking with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. No, we'll definitely have you back on some other time if you want. <laughs> I mean, again, I thought we had a great conversation. Anytime. Just let me know. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever it is that the algorithm demands of you, because that is literally the only way podcasts grow anymore. And in an ever-shrinking or ever-growing market, we need all the help we can get. And whatever platform you're listening to us on, thank you. We are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Pocket Cast. Those are the ones I have written down here. So if there is a different platform that you want us to be a part of that would be easier for you, let us know what it is, and we'll look into it. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable.